Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 3, Episode 12. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, as our year-ending episode, I will be answering 10 of the most commonly asked questions from sellers, buyers, and investors who are fueling the surge in M&A activity in the franchise sector. These questions are wide in scope, so they should provide valuable insights for almost any listener. I hope you enjoy. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Deliver to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, hey, I'm glad you're with us here today. This is the year-end episode. It's hard to believe we're at the end of 2021. Man, how time has flown this year. I hope you guys have a great holiday season, guys and and girls, and you know, have a great holiday season. I'll share with you a story. Like, I love watching the Christmas Vacation movie with uh, Chevy Chase and Randy Quaid, Cousin Eddie. You know, I don't know if you guys watch that at all, but good old Cousin Eddie. I could watch that cousin Eddie, when he like shows up as a surprise, you know, with the RV and like stands in the front yard looking at the lights. I could watch that like, I don't know, like every day all year long and still keep laughing. Maybe it's because I'm originally from Kentucky and I got family like that. (laughs) I don't know, but it's hilarious. I hope you enjoy the Christmas movies. But, you know, my dear wife, she's quite the, the light person over the Christmas season. I don't know if you have someone in your family that's this way, or maybe you're this way, but I don't have to do any of the light stuff. She loves to do it. And I was looking outside and she was going to town on our front yard. I mean, every bush, she's got snowmen in the front yard. We got the joy sign, you know, we've got trees that are getting wrapped. We've got garland everywhere. We've got lights hung on the back you know, on the back fence. I mean, it's just basically like a Chevy Chase Christmas around here. <laughs> so go picture that visual. That's uh, the Ormsby family uh, lighting scenario at our house. I uh, hope you guys enjoy the Christmas season and uh, many best. It's hard to believe that we're going to be embarking on a new year uh, soon. And boy, what a year it has been. I mean, for us on, at Unbridled and probably, and I'm hoping for anyone who's listening here, I hope that you can also say that it's been a a great year professionally for you, not without its difficulties. I I would say that we've, you know, at Unbridled, we've done probably, you know, we've grown our business by probably twofold over the last year. You know, it hasn't come without long nights, sleepless weekends, et cetera, et cetera. But we feel blessed to be in a position to be so busy and really to be growing our business. And, And I hope you look on the year with reflection and positivity and feel the same way. Today, I have taken some time to write down kind of 10 general questions that I commonly get throughout the year from, I mean, it could be buyers or sellers or private equity groups, family offices, you know, I mean, even lenders and and real estate folks who support the M&A and, you know, business, the franchise business. And I just get these questions. And so I tried to sit down and write down, you know, kind of a review of these questions. I would say on average, I get each one of these questions on a weekly basis. I, you know, <laughs> you know, something like this or every other week. So I hear these questions a lot. 
sometimes they're phrased a little bit differently, but I'll try to answer them generally so that you guys can hear this, wrap up the year, kind of think about the M&A space and what we might think will happen going forward in 2022. And I hope that regardless of what type of a person you are listening to this, whether you are a buyer or a seller or whether you're, you know, what stage or what you're looking to acquire, or what you're looking to divest of, you know, what brand that you support, whether you're a franchise or wherever you are in this cycle of this beautiful and wonderful industry that supports our American dream so, so strongly. I hope that there's some questions in here that I'll answer that, that will give you some insights. And then we'll, we'll look forward to catching up again in 2022 afterwards. Okay. So the first question that I have here, and I, I get this a lot, is as a buyer, how do I select a brand? So envision this question being something like a family office or a private equity company would call me and they would say, Rick, I want to get into franchising. I see all these guys, you know, all these people who have done it over the last couple of years and their names are all over these, these, you know, important magazines now and all the deals that they're doing and the money that they're making. And how do I select a brand? How do I do this? And my answer is um, usually starts out like something like this. I'll say, well, the first thing I would say is you've, you've got to get a thesis on several brands. My comment is I, I have watched over almost 20 years financial groups call me by the probably the thousands now, okay, over all this time, time frame. And I do see one almost 100% link. And it's people, these firms that call who are unsuccessful almost never have focus. So it's like anything in life, man. If you want to be successful, you got to have focus. Like I don't buy the strategy of, oh, I'm a family office or private equity guy. And I look at all kinds of deals from all kinds of different brands and whether it would be a, you know, a blah, blah, blah tax franchise brand over here or a myriad group of, of different brands in the QSR side. And I'm also looking at casual dining and I look at fitness and I see every deal. We're interested in everything. So when I hear that from someone who calls in and says, oh, we're interested in everything, the first thing I say to myself in my head is, and I'll, and most of the time I tell it to the person too, because that's just who I am. I say, the chance of you ever acquiring anything with that kind of a strategy is zero. And then I think, I'm not going to be talking with them much more. When someone calls me and they say, I'm really interested in the pizza segment because of the following four reasons, and I think... We would be interested in operating in the southeastern United States. Then I say, "Oh, well, you have some, you know, you have some specificity in what you're looking to to acquire. That's somebody who who's likely to be successful if they put some teeth behind their effort and they're patient enough to wait out a six to twelve month period to find the right acquisition. It's a way different type of you know response from me. So I would say the first thing I would do is. Don't be too broad, okay? Got to be specific. And so that's the first thing, you know, so when you say, how do I select a brand? I say, okay, well, before we start thinking about selecting a brand, let's make sure we first get really specific and let's pick two to three brands. And they're, so, they're like, well, what, what two to three brands am I looking to pick up? My, my question then becomes, well, what size of an investment are you looking to acquire? How much EBITDA do you want? What brands do you absolutely not like? And what areas of the country do you not want to be in? And how big do you want to be? These kind of questions help me kind of narrow in on a brand. You know, most brands, um, you know, if you, if you want the most fluid M&A market, for example, if it's a family office or private equity buyer who ultimately wants to have 300 or 400 restaurants across two or three brands, and they're looking for their first brand as a platform investment, 
that they need like 40 or 50 restaurants or more to have the GNA and the structure to hire a big management team and then to build from there. If that's what they're looking to do, I would respond like this. You're typically then probably looking at a franchise brand that has two or 3,000 units or more, right? And when we put that first screen on the brands that we see, I mean, that cuts the brands pretty significantly, right? The second question I ask is, okay, are, are we talking restaurants or, or non-restaurants? Most of the time people, although increasingly people are asking non-restaurants, but, but most of the time people, people call in looking for QSR restaurants because so much of the franchise world of scale and size and longevity to this point has been in that realm. So if I find out that it's going to be QSR restaurants and then we find out that they want to buy a large platform acquisition, then my answer is you need to probably be at two to 3,000 units or more in terms of the brand that you look at. And the question look at, and then and the question is why? Well, you know, if you want a platform acquisition, most, you know, some people have the strategy of, of buying the biggest franchisee in a smaller brand, which is a great possible idea to be a big kahuna in a small pond, right? But the problem there is, I mean, the opportunity might be that you have a lot of greenfield development to grow the brand, but the downside might be that there's you know a lot of small franchisees that makes it difficult to acquire further add-on packages of scale or the sophistication in the brand may not be of the size that that someone would be interested in so that plays a little bit into the smaller brands a question of the smaller brands might also be whether or not they have high growth characteristics like you think of like a brand like Wingstop that's growing crazily right and then you think of some of the legacy brands that you see kind of rotting on the corner in middle America that aren't growing and you say well if it's a small brand that's brand that's not growing is it the right brand for someone to get into if it has a low low unit count so that's the first place I go. If we have that initial discussion and they're looking for something that's going to have two or 3,000 units or more because they want that initial platform acquisition, and then they say, well, I, I, after that, I want to grow this 40 or 50 unit initial acquisition into two or 300 and then use it as a platform to buy more uh, another brand, then it's easy to cut it down to like 15 different franch restaurant franchises in a hurry, right? You can just go online and Google and find the restaurant franchisees by size, by number of units. I mean, the, the information is public. It's out there consolidated in some places, at which point then you, you kind of look at it and you say, okay, well, then we kind of pick apart the, within the 15. You say, okay, well, some of these don't really offer a free market system of buying and selling. Some of the franchisors will only allow you to have one or two, one or two of these restaurants and not a whole portfolio. Some of these restaurant companies, and I'm not going to name any names, but some of them don't allow you to own real estate. They own the real estate and then control the buying and selling, and they don't allow for like a free market buying and selling process, which is usually not in the best interest of these family office and private equity groups that are buying. Then you look at it, you know, put another like filter on it, and you say, these brands that, um, that have like the characteristics for acquisition, further acquisitions are not good. So some of the brands might be, for example, let's say most of the franchisees are one and two units. Well, if you're a larger firm and you're looking to, you know, acquire more after your first acquisition, you want an environment where you have some uh, girth in the franchise system. In other words, you have other franchisees of substantial size that you might be able to target for future acquisitions. And so that's maybe a, you know, a filter that, that you'd want to place on it. You want to ask within these 15 brands, like what, you know, what their 
recent performance has been, what the lenders feel about them. And and that's another question I'm going to talk about here in a little bit, but like, how easy is it to borrow money? You know, most of the financial buyers of these businesses want to lever up these businesses as much as they can, responsibly speaking. And what, what is the lending community looking at for some of these brands? I mean, you have these least adjusted leverage calculations that are different for each brand. And, you know, the risk departments of some of these banks just won't touch some of the brands that have some some difficult performance. Now, some people want to have a turnaround. And so that's another question within these 15 brands that have these certain size requirements in terms of number of units. Do you want a high growth brand that you're willing to pay a huge price for and have a lower upfront return on investment, but the chance to build more units and earn back your kind of return on investment by building new units. And then also with the backdrop of having an asset that has a higher value if you ever have to sell it, right? Or do you want to go in to buy something that's kind of, you know, tired or kicked around or or in a brand that doesn't isn't trading as valuably where you might have a better opportunity to improve it. You're going to have better return on investment kind of calculations, right? Because you've bought it at a lower price, but you may not have as strong of a business underpinning you if you ever decided to sell it or if things went bad. That's another kind of a, another filter like recent brand performance and then the price at which something, you know, must be acquired, you know, or is likely to be acquired. And so those kind of questions take the 15 brands really quickly. I mean, once you just put the like, I can't buy and sell it, I can't own the real estate, I can't own more than one or two, or I can't be in any other business if I'm in this brand, that 15, roughly 15 brand kind of analysis drops you to like 10 brands or nine brands really quickly. Then you ask the question, okay, within those remaining nine or 10 brands, a couple of them are pizza brands, a couple of them are chicken, mostly chicken brands, a couple of them are burger brands, right? And so within those, you can't be owning those both of those types of you know brands you can't own two different pizza brands right so so you can only own one for non compete reasons so you kind of form a a viewpoint between the different types of the different segments and then you know most people kind of I can just tell them you know here I'm going through the analysis of just kind of like well I like this brand better than this brand this pizza brand better than that pizza brand and that you know or this burger brand better than that burger brand, you know, and so then that kind of strikes off four or five of the remaining 10 or so brands, right? And so you're only now left with four or five brands. And then the question then becomes, well, what area in the country are you wanting to operate? A lot of people say, I don't want to be in the West Coast and I don't want to be in the Northeast. Some people say, well, I want to be in those markets because I feel like if I get into those markets, they've already undergone a lot of the appreciation of labor in the P&Ls. And so I know what I'm buying. You know, you, you hear all kinds of views, but but I'd say 75% of the people who want to buy anything don't want to buy on the West Coast or in the Northeast, unless they're already operating in those markets. So if someone's coming in from new, you know, you want you probably look at some of the remaining brands and where their concentration is, right? And you may may then skinny the brand list down to to three or four brands. And then bingo, you're at a you're at a remaining three or four brand list that you can kind of delve and dive into. And then it's time to kind of go to the franchisor. You can always ask Unbridled and we can introduce you to the franchisor, but it's time to have those conversations about the brand so you get to learn more. And that's kind of, and and then you listen to the management teams and you listen to the plans and strategies they have put forth. 
And then from there, you kind of maybe you settle in on two or three brands, and then that becomes your kind of your bucket that you're going after when you're looking at acquiring something. So there you go. You know, I'm, I'm really largely catering in the answer to this question to the people who are coming in out. You know, they may own like a, they may have a, a billion dollar fund, you know, and they're looking at making a platform restaurant franchise investment. But if you're somebody who's, who's, who's calling in who might be a franchisee of, of a brand, let's say you own 50 of a sub shop brand and you want to get into a second brand, I mean, your, your discussion would be a lot different, right? There's not a lot of natural competition to sub franchises, right? So you're kind of open to anything across the segment in the restaurant space if that's, if that's where you want to be for your second brand. And then you kind of look at where your units are geographically if you're an existing franchisee of any brand, right? Because then you want to see kind of where... There's complementary areas that might overlap for your operations. And then you kind of look at like how diversified is your portfolio of restaurants versus what you want to buy. I mean, do you want to be concentrated and buy something in the same geography or of the same type of segment? Like, you know, or do you want to go something totally separate? Like it is true that some of these segments don't move in in concert with one another, right? So burgers may not be going up at the same time that pizza is going up and casual dining might not be going up at the same time that QSR is going up. And sometimes certain drive-through types of QSR perform better. Uh, you know, for example, like Sonic, where you drive in and, and you, they just naturally had a contactless delivery model that may work better than other QSR concepts during the COVID crisis. And so there's all kinds of factors there. I hope that gives you all some idea. Okay, that's the first question. I hope the other ones are going to be a little shorter. Sorry for rambling. Okay, so another one is, Rick, what's your biggest concern for our industry for 2022? And specifically, like, what's your concern from, from an M&A perspective, you know, as you see these deals going on? So I get this question a lot. I think in the last, you know, I'm talking to you here like in the middle of December, right? So in the last 60 to 90 days, I've, you know, I've been hearing a lot about food inflation. You'll be hearing the franchisors and the equity research analysts and the franchisees. Everybody's talking about food inflation. And heck, it ain't just food inflation. You know, it's inflation of everything in our country right now, right? I mean, look at gas prices and price of construction materials and cost to build new franchises right now, just availability of materials, the whole thing. But pricing and particularly food inflation is a concern of mine for 2022. A lot of franchisors are getting in front of this as best they can and are, you know, recommending or mandating that their franchisees raise their prices to combat the near-term food inflation situation. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the wing shortage and the cost of wings. I mean, gosh, you'd think chicken wings are like buying gold right now with the cost and how much it's gone up and down. It's just been very volatile in the pricing, but we should expect big food inflation in 2022. So that worries me. I think the brands will offset most of it with pricing, but I do also have a secondary concern about the ability of pricing to continue to stick. And when I say that, like for those of you who are franchisees who listen, you know, like price sticking pricing, it's like if I raise my price from $5 to $6, will I, you know, lose any customers in the process or will the customers stick and the increase in prices stick? You know, usually when I used to work at KFC corporate and we would assume that like you would see 90% of pricing initiatives flow to the bottom line in terms of EBITDA, right? Like there would be no demand degradation from the clients. In other words, a customer is not going to, you know, not come and not buy because the cost went up from 525, you know, to 550. 
And then you would say, okay, well, about 90% of that flows to the bottom line because the only thing you got to pay on every dollar of sales that from pricing increases is really royalties and advertising, right? I mean, labor doesn't really change if you raise the price of a taco by 25 cents. Food cost doesn't change, right? I mean, it, the, your, your fixed costs, your, your utility costs in the back of the restaurant, you know, all these things kind of stay the same. But is a concern of mine when I now go to... I mean, like my kids love Chick-fil-A. They went to Chick-fil-A the other day here locally down the street and, you know, like a number four or whatever the meal is. And they, they, it's like $11 and, and 30 cents. And I'm thinking to myself, like chicken sandwich fries and a, like a small Sprite is like $11 and 30 cents. I had someone just the other day I was talking to called me and he said, Rick, I just got a 10 piece chicken McNugget fries and a water. And it was like $11. And so the prices are, are coming up quite a bit. And, and I know I'm on the side of supporting the business owner, right? I mean, when your costs are being inflated, you have to raise your prices. But there, I think there is some price and at some point where I think you're going to see demand diminish if prices continue to rise. And I'm, and I'm concerned about that for 2022. So keep an eye on the prices uh, you know, getting so high that the demand actually drops. Um, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. You know, another concern of mine is obviously labor. You know, I continue to hear the the beating of the war drum of the franchisees who are like, Rick, you know, it's man, this is a this circumstance is really hard to keep good people. It's harder than I've ever seen it. I'm hearing a little bit less kind of a worry about that than than I did like back in July, August, September, October. It's probably because the states have, have backed off some of the support of, you know, of, of people who aren't working potentially, depending on the state and where you are. But but I am hearing a little bit less of it, but still it's a, it, it is a an unprecedented time to find labor and to, to keep them uh, employed. And I, I don't know that that's going to go away, although I do, I do feel like that is being become addressed over the last year. And while a big problem, maybe don't look at it as much of a surprise as the food inflation issue. You know, and then I think about Kind of another thing that concerns me is the sales rollovers. I mean, we, you know, QSR especially has been has been on kind of a, a generally speaking, not every brand, but generally speaking, has been kind of on a nice sales tear over the last call it eighteen months. So most of the time, you know, now we're starting to we've we've been lapping over big sales from last year for a while. I keep kind of you know waiting to to hear from you know from folks franchisees with substantial sales declines and i mean i i'm not you know on a on a comp basis as we move forward and um in some brands sales are are indeed dipping and it is regional and it is by brand too but you know largely speaking i think the the environment from a comp sales perspective in QSR continues to be pretty strong i was on the phone with a big pizza franchisee just yesterday who was feeling really good that that uh, you know, comp sales and profits were looking good through the first half of 2022, and that was his individual situation in his markets. But that nonetheless remains an, an issue when you're going through a deal and sales on a comp basis are, are are going down during due diligence. It becomes difficult to get the deal underwritten and for the financial changing financials not to result in some in some retrading between the buyer and seller at some level if the amount of comp sales declines and profit declines are substantial and continual. So that's a that's an issue. And then here we are sitting on this Omicron virus. I don't know what the heck that's going to do or, you know, how that's going to impact things. I have seen that 
I think we all have that there have been some travel restrictions and things being put in place and some who knows how that'll play itself out over the wintertime when it's cold and everybody's indoors and probably more likely to be in contact with one another. So uh, that is is obviously a kind of an you know, ongoing concern, although I, I would just say, like, I think I've seen some CEOs say publicly in the last couple of weeks that you know, people are just going to learn to deal with this. It's not going to go away. This virus situation is just going to be something that we'll all have to probably manage around for a for a longer period of time and get comfortable with the fact that people are going to get sick. So those are some of my big concerns. That's question number two. Another one would be comments on the franchise or acquisitions that you've seen this year. Yeah, this one's maybe a little quicker. I mean, just yesterday, I think it was, Jack in the Box announced that it was acquiring Del Taco. And, you know, my opinion on that is any of these acquisitions that you see are going to result in some positive synergies from a GNA and pricing perspective. But that's not really the, that's probably not going to make the analysts feel good about the models that they're developing, that it's going to be a synergistic acquisition. I mean, I think what you're seeing is these franchisors are buying more brands so that they can, you know, and they're buying complementary brands and brands that they can put their franchise, that they can try to expand their franchise base in the brand they're acquiring to the franchisee of the existing brand. So for example, would it be a surprise to me to see more jack-in-the-box franchisees build Del Tacos in the coming years? No, not a bit. It wouldn't be. And you're seeing kind of these kind of clusters of groups form, like you've got Inspire that's really been, that's built, built up and, you know, a couple of their brands, right? Like Jimmy John's and they just, they just bought Dunkin' and they got Buffalo Wild Wings and Arby's and Sonic. And then I think they have a taco, small taco brand as well. They're trying to make these brands complementary of one another so that franchisees who own in one brand could jump over and own in another In that brand, who the heck knows, but you might start seeing Sonic franchisees build Dunkin' units, right? Or, you you know, as an example, you have Yum, which has always kind of been there. They added Habit this year, and Habit is a burger chain, a small burger chain in California. I'm sure Yum was thinking, we've got all these big and powerful KFC Taco Bell and Pizza Hut franchisees with lots of capital and high unit counts and well-capitalized businesses, and it'd be nothing for them to sign on and you know, expand this mostly California small burger concept and throw 10 of them in, I don't know, you know, Oklahoma City or wherever in the heck it might be, you know, Dallas is part of their relationship with Yum. And so I'm sure that's one. And then you've got RBI that, uh, you know, has a has a litany of brands. And, and you've just kind of noticed over the years that the Burger King franchisees and RBI have started to build Popeye's locations. I mean, why? Because they like the unit economics of the Popeye's model. I mean, you build a a Popeyes, it, and it you know may do you know the average AUV I believe is in the one seven to one point eight million dollar range, which gets buyers and operators excited about building into that space. It should because a lot of the other brands are showing one point two, one point three, one point four million dollar AUVs, which just ain't cutting it for a new build when the cost of construction is going up by twenty five percent. Just not financially viable if you can't deliver better AUVs than that to build new units, which all franchisors want to encourage their franchisees, if not push their franchisees to build new units. So, and then I think across those, you're kind of seeing like each one of those, and, and now you have Jack in the Box and Del Taco. So they, they're they a burger brand mostly, right? Uh, Jack in the Box, and they're adding a taco brand. So you kind of see these complementary brands forming in these conglomerate companies that enable the franchisor to get better distribution of the new brand among its franchisees without kind of conflict or competition issues. 
I expect, you know, we, we, we've seen it's, it's almost like playing basketball in the playground, right? You know, like everyone's picking a teammate, you know what I'm saying? And they're all building their team from the playground to play. And so, you know, it's kind of become a little territorial, but it is um, also, you know, I think over time you're going to see a little bit more difficulty jumping between the brands. In other words, it's going to be maybe more difficult tomorrow than it is today to be a an Inspire Brands franchisee and then a franchisee of another brand in one of those other buckets like Yum, RBI, or maybe this combined Jack in the Box Del Taco situation. And it might work like this. Like if you're a Yum franchisee, you and you own Pizza Huts, right? And you want to buy Popeye's, well, both RBI and Yum may have a problem with KFC being the competing brand, even though you don't own KFCs within the Yum family. Does that make sense? So, I mean, we just, you know, there are FDDs that that kind of, and most of the FDDs clearly lay out which brands are non-compete brands. So I don't want to try to jump in front of that and say what is and what isn't. You can read that for yourself and request that from the franchisor. But I just think, just keep remembering this analogy of the schoolyard and, you know, like divvying up a bunch of kids to form a bunch of basketball teams, right? Like you pick your team that you're going to play for. You pick your brand, your, your conglomerate that you're going to work, that, that you're going to kind of develop stores and own stores and operate stores in. And then you kind of stay in that bucket a little more than maybe you used to in, in years past as a result of all the kind of the acquisition of the brands that have been happening to form these conglomerate companies. Okay. Another one is number four here, franchisor temperature. What Tell us about the franchisor, what's changed this year in the franchisor. And I guess I would say the franchisors in large part, I think, did a fantastic job of rolling out their plans during COVID, their cleanliness plans, their operational plans, their sales and marketing plans, their advertising plans to keep these businesses on the QSR side, especially really humming along and doing well. And I would say in large, large measure, they use virtual tools and they rallied the franchise bases well. In many cases, they delayed some development. And so I think that was, uh, that was also intentional and probably a good idea because hard to borrow money when we hit the pandemic, right? And you couldn't get people to build anything and the whole world shut down for probably a period of six months. So, so I, I applaud the franchisors in that way. But, you know, that comes at a price, doesn't it? Because the franchisors, ultimately, the ones that are public are answering to the street on earnings per share growth and new unit development, right? And the ones that aren't public uh, even may even have more aggressive goals for new unit development. And so I think um, that that is now what I'm seeing coming forward with a, a fury. And the franchisors, I think, whether they're saying it or not, I bet they're thinking this, are like, your all's business has been kicking butt. You can now start building restaurants, right? You can start doing what we want to do. We've helped you out now. Now you're flush with cash. It's time to open your pocketbook and build. So I'm seeing definitely a turn towards development in a rampant way, especially on our new acquisitions where we're helping someone sell a business and then some, you know, and someone buys it. And the buyer takes it to corporate and says, hey, I'm going to buy this business. And corporate says, sure, but you're going to build 20 new restaurants over the next four years. And if you don't build them, we're going to penalize you with pretty stiff penalties until you do. And so that is becoming a bigger part of the conversation. The development ask, I think, is getting more and more tough, difficult. And uh, there's there's a lot of pushback at that level with buyers who are getting hit with franchisors develop asking for huge development obligations. Another thing I, I would say is like in my first, you know, heck, I don't know, 15, 18, 19 years in the business, I probably saw across the brands that I was doing deals, I probably saw the franchisor do maybe 
exercise the right of first refusal less than a handful of times, right? It wasn't a common thing. The asset light model that we've been reading about for years was kind of the vogue thing to do, right? Which is the franchisors wanted to sell all their corporate stores and only operate somewhere between zero and 5% for marketing purposes and for brand relevancy purposes. And then they wanted to sell the rest of the stores to franchisees because there's a better return on investment to be a brand manager, not a restaurant manager, if that makes sense. But now we're seeing right of first refusals being invoked. I've we've seen this on three or four occasions in the last three months. So it's something that's happening more. In one case, it was corporate going to buy and operate the restaurants. And then in three other cases that we've seen it, it is for the purpose of corporate, you know, kind of exercising the right of first refusal and then either like owning temporarily and giving it to another franchisee uh, or selling it to another franchisee that they want to bring into the system for whatever reason it might be, or they would invoke the right of first refusal, but pass it to another existing franchisee and not buy it themselves. So I don't know that that's a major trend. I mean, you know, when we do, if we're going to do 40 or 50 deals in a year and we see four of them that are like that, that's, that's kind of a pretty big increase, especially in the hundreds of deals before where there, you know, a thousand, I don't know how many, but lots and lots of deals over the past 20 years where we've very rarely seen it. So I'd expect to see kind of a more hands-on franchisor in the transfer approval process and more exercising of right of first refusals and definitely more push for development. And buyers are going to have to be wary of it and are going to have to negotiate as they're able. Okay. Number five, M&A outlook for 2022. QSR, I think the deals are going to continue to flow. You know, it's mid-December. We signed up like six new assignments in the last four weeks after a period between like August, September, and October where it was very quiet, which was expected, right? Because with the proposed you know, tax changes and with, with people's fear that taxes were going up in 2022, heck, they still might. But, but we don't know. People who are wanting to sell in 2021, you know, you know, because of that, and they wanted to get their businesses on the market in the spring and the summertime, right? And so that just created a vacuum in the fall where it was kind of quiet. But I think we've seen the QSR guys come back to the market pretty strongly in December. And I think it's just because of, hey, there's a couple of reasons. They might be thinking, well, these franchisees, well, you know, prices are still really high. I missed the initial window, but I'm not going to miss it again. Operational environment might be difficult now, and I can't see myself owning this thing for another five to 10 years. I'm kind of tired. Taxes don't look like they're going to be going up meaningfully. And as such, I've got, I should do it as soon as I can. Those might be the reasons, but whatever the reasons, I think we're going to see QSR probably pick up again once you probably hit mid January to, to like the middle of April. I think there's going to be maybe as much activity as there was in 2021. So strap up, man, and get ready because I expect it'll be a busy time. And then let me talk about a couple of other places for M&A Outlook. Casual dining and fast casual, they largely have not been able to sell because their you know, comp sales have, have been poor, right? They've, it took them a while to get back from COVID. I, I've, I've had calls, you know, a lot of casual dining folks are calling me and I'm asking the questions and they're answering mostly in the same way. Like business is almost back to where it was in 2019 would be kind of the way that I would generally describe it. But we've only been showing that for four or five months. To which point I say, you know, you need to wait a little bit more. The market is still really, and all the lenders and everybody are focused on closing all these deals, uh, you know, by the end of 2021, the lenders are not focused on casual dining and they're going to look back into the trailing 12 months and they're going to still see some, you know, some poor performance in four or five or six of those months. 
because of COVID. And so you need to prove the case a little bit more. We can't just pro forma the last four months of good sales and say that this is what it's going to look like going forward. That may work as an explanation to some buyers, but it won't with a lot of the lenders. So I think we're probably going to see like a Q2, you'll start seeing the casual diners. As long as the operating environment, economic environment don't change substantially and we're not in some crazy recession, I think you'll see casual and fast casual kind of start coming out because there's a lot of pent up demand, man. You couldn't sell any casual dining or fast casual company really in 2020 in 2021. And then here we'll get to like Q2 of 2022. And that's two and a half years. I think you're going to see that the uh, supply will increase pretty quickly as soon as the trailing 12 month financial statement looks decent and more predictive of what it's been in the past. And when we start getting some positive lender comments coming out saying, Hey, more than just, yeah, we'll look at anything, but actually they'll actually fund casual dining deals that aren't distressed deals. Small franchisors are calling us a lot. Something that we're starting to see that has been uh, quite a big up to uptick from last few years and even the few years before that. So maybe the same kind of emotions are going on with these owners of small franchisors. And I'm talking like people who might have a brand that has 25 units in Wherever'sville, USA, and they've owned it for 35 years and they and their family operate it. And they may have some franchisees or they may not. But we seem to be getting a big influx of those types of phone calls. So I think those types of deals will probably go the route of the casual and fast casual kind of process here, where once the comp sales look strong and the market kind of rebounds for financing those deals, I think you'll see a big uptick in supply. I'm hoping that that'll happen, you know, as QSR maybe settles down. And so those those small franchisors and the franchisees of casual and fast casual will have kind of less supply from the QSR side to compete with their deals. We will see. And then I think you have the fourth bucket for M&A Outlook, which is the non-restaurant deals. And I, you know, we're starting to hear about, you know, fitness deals, health and beauty deals coming back into the market. So it's kind of a similar thing. I mean, I, I think I would put all of these deals about a year behind what QSR was, which if you listen to this podcast, I was kind of saying, man, like this time last year, like November of 2020, October, December 2020, I was like, the rush is coming. The rush is coming. We're starting to see some of these some of these businesses now come out on the market. The performance is good. We're going to see it grow substantially in 2021. I kind of was saying that before anyone else was, if you listen and watch. And, and sure enough, I was right. You know, in 2021, it blew up. And we kind of sort of have the same kind of thing going with casual, fast casual, small franchisors and non-restaurant franchisees that were kind of in that same kind of cycle. And so I expect 2022 to be a big, a big rebound, but I think it will be a little more delayed than it was on QSR just because of the comp sales issue. So that's my outlook. But I think 2022 could as a whole barring any unforeseen circumstances like massive recession or terrible you know, virus returns in some in- incredibly unpredictable way or what have you. I think 2022 M&A could look almost as robust as 2021, which just a few months ago, I would have said, no way. You know, 2021 is going to be the highest it's ever been. But I think it could, 2022 could be, could be similar. So hold on. Could be another busy year for all of us. Okay, there's a comment here about lender updates. I get this question a lot. And I've kind of talked about it in the last comment about M&A Outlook. So what's your update with lenders and cap rates? And I would just say 
Cap rates are continue are continue to be strong. There was some fear that the new tax policy, whatever it would be, would kind of restrict or maybe even eliminate, you know, the 1031 exchange market, which was, you know, could could would crash our economy because so many things are dependent upon 1031s in the commercial real estate space. But I haven't seen any legislation that really addresses that concern in any way. So let's just assume for the moment until we know otherwise that the 1031 market stays now what it is and it and won't change. The cap rate environment continues to be very attractive. The, the EBITDA market, you know, the, the multiples on some of these businesses that are selling are continuing to be strong, if not record prices. So prices are very high, historically high. Cap rates are historically strong on real estate. I mean, look around at any piece of real estate that you're looking to acquire, whether it's a house, a trailer park, a restaurant, or a bowling alley, whatever it is, the real estate is really expensive. It's probably at an all-time high, right? I mean, so there's been incredible appreciation as interest rates have stayed low. In 2022, we must expect from both a lender and a and a and a you know say a leaseback perspective that that with uh, inflation kind of zooming upwards and comments from the Fed people in the Fed saying we might need six to eight you know interest rate hikes in the near term right I mean you're hearing that anytime you see the interest rates come up tightens the cash flow restricts borrowing a little bit and the euphoria of borrowing hopefully it's done in a planful way but that kind of a a meaningful change in interest rates is likely to turn the EBITDA multiples down a little bit, and it's likely to worsen the cap rates a little bit above their historical highs. And so you might see some gradual but meaningful you know, lowering in, in valuations that, that may accompany like successive and continued changes in interest rates. Be mindful of that. And the last comment I would make about lenders is I think the credit departments of these lenders are tightening up a little bit because of the previously mentioned comments on pricing and labor and food inflation and some of the sales rollovers on a comp sales basis. So, you know, you talk to the sales guy at the bank and he's all positive and things are great. But you know, uh, behind him is a is or her is a risk department, and they the underwriters are, are much more conservative. So it, it would behoove you to ask those questions if you're looking to borrow money. Don't just talk with the sales guy. Ask to talk with the with the credit people too, and also be frank with them up front about which brands are they aggressive with and which ones aren't they. There's a big dichotomy. Everyone wants to finance a Taco Bell deal. But not everybody wants to finance, for example, a Pizza Hut deal. So there's just a way different grouping of lenders based on the, the brand that you're interested in acquiring. So that's something to, to be mindful of. Okay. Number seven, what complications have you seen in due diligence in your deals this year? Well, this is a monster question. So I'm going to pull up just a couple of the deals, not mention any of them, but I'm just going to talk about real quickly in a kind of fire away at some of the things that we saw in due diligence. Okay. On this, on one deal, we saw, you know, we saw issues with, you know, the franchisor trying to uh, push huge development obligations and a huge relationship agreement on the buyer who's coming into a new system. Eventually got worked out, required a lot of time to negotiate. This one here, we saw a buyer went into due diligence with a seller and the, the assets weren't very, weren't very strong. So the buyer did their third-party inspection, sent people around to look at all the buildings and all, and came back with a huge price deduction, probably more than they should have and were warranted. And it had to be negotiated through some difficulty. Another one we saw in property taxes on real estate transfers were, were unexpected by the buyer and required a negotiation. The next one, oh, here's one, a big deal that we worked on where the seller's attorney 
had no experience, even though it was a big franchisee, had had very little experience working with doing M&A deals. And that's something that I would just kind of say, like we always on our clients recommend third party, you know, attorneys that have like dedicated experience doing franchise to franchise M&A work. Because if you have a good trusted attorney that you've worked with over the years, it's helped you from everything from lease assignments to your divorce or whatever it is, that person doesn't spend their day every day negotiating M&A deals with sophisticated buyers. And so this particular deal had a surprisingly large franchisee and an attorney that wasn't, you know, kind of mostly familiar and it made the negotiations tough. This next couple of deals fell into the same category where we had an international franchisee come in to buy the businesses and uh, then they went to corporate and uh, they, they didn't like the terms of the relationship agreement uh, to get approved in the brand. And so they walked away from the deal and it forced us to remarket the deal to somebody else. I've had two deals this year, believe it or not, where that were on Indian reservations in different areas of the country. So those getting those leases assigned, you have to be very careful about the lease language there. And so those have been maybe more arduous because of some of the specific lease assignment language in these with these Indian tribes. So uh, in these two cases, particularly, and I'm just looking at deals that we're doing here, we had one, you have to look at the brand. We were in a new brand this year that has a reputation for, you know, when you submit the buyer and seller's uh, asset purchase agreement, they will look at it and shop it around among their franchisees to try to find someone who will pay for it at the same price or a higher price, which is a surprise to us and quite frankly, a questionable business practice. But um, that caused a, an extra 90-day delay in the transfer approval process because of the franchisor's kind of process of, of a, you know, that they go through to ultimately approve of someone to buy the business. We had, um, we had, you know, in some areas of the country, you have major weather problems like hurricanes and snowstorms that can change deals or change the closing on deals or, you know, kind of change the, the utility transfers and kind of the sales, you know, and all those sort of things and opening and closing. Uh, we had another deal that had a really difficult attorney that was, that was pretty tough on, on uh, the escrows and the uh, indemnification provisions that really made it difficult. So that just maybe gives you a few. I'm just going to scan through here. We had one here where another one where a new franchisee was coming into a new brand. They were a big franchisee of another brand. The approval process took longer than expected to work out, in this case, again, the development agreements going forward. You have another deal that... Um, you know, the, the, you know, the buyer was you know a little bit disorganized and the purchase agreement took an extra, you know, 30 days to negotiate than what we expected. And we had another deal here that we had to break up into two chunks because the, the buyer wouldn't, wouldn't buy all of it and only wanted some of it. That's not common for us to see. We had, we had a deal here where franchisor invoked the right of first refusal and then is trying to sell it to somebody else. And so the deal had to get broken up into two separate deals. And then we had one that got retraded a couple of times in due diligence because the EBITDA was dropping fairly substantially during the closing process. Wow, that's a big mess. So I hope there's something in there that might be uh, helpful to you. Question number eight, what are the main items a seller forgets to consider? Huh. Okay. Most people who sell things, especially the less sophisticated ones, and it's, and it's amazing, like you can be a big franchisee and be unsophisticated. It's not really totally a matter of size. But if you're a first generation franchisee, whether you're big or small, you're probably unfamiliar with some of this. You probably think that an advisor's main role is to find the highest price. 
right? And so you're thinking like, okay, the most important thing is the highest price and then everything else will work itself out as if I was selling my house or something. And that's just not the case here. I would say a seller forgets to think about their legacy. They forget to think about tax planning. They forget to think about the importance of a good, dedicated attorney who has deal, specific deal experience negotiating with purchase agreements with with a family office and private equity buyers because those guys are tough and those gals are tough, right? So that's something that they don't think about. Sellers almost always who are less sophisticated or unfamiliar don't think about the APA terms. And so, for example, if I tell you it's customary to see 5 to 7% of the purchase price held back in an escrow agreement for 12 to 18 months, you know, and held in a bucket for any unforeseen liabilities, and then it's given out if there are no claims against that bucket, and you might say, I was selling a $50 million company, you're telling me $3 million, $4 million is going into that bucket. I'm only seeing 46 to $47 million at closing, and the rest of it is sitting in a contingent bucket in escrow for 12 to 18 months, as an example, right? You, most people are not familiar with that. That you know, They're also usually not familiar with, with the consequences and the contingent liability of the indemnification clauses that these buyers are trying to push on the sellers. It's most of the unsophisticated sellers will say, oh, it's an as is, where is sale? I'm selling them and I'm walking away. And that's absolutely not the way most of the professional buying community thinks of it. So there's usually a major disconnect there that requires a lot of education to get over the hurdle. You have lease assignments. You know, almost everybody you talk to says, oh, if I have 20 restaurants, it'll be no problem to get the lease assignments, right? You know, some will say, I've got a couple of booger landlords, but but mostly it's like, oh, this will be no problem. And then we get into due diligence and there's always four or five or three or four out of a group of 20 that are totally unreasonable. I can think of a deal right now where they're trying to, you know, a couple of landlords are trying to double the rent upon assignment. Some others that are, that are, are you know, are not approving the assignment because the form of the company buying the business is an LLC, not an S corporation. I mean, just crazy stuff that seems nonsensical. You know, a lot of these buyers aren't going to offer personal guarantees. That's part of their deal. If they're a private equity group, they're not going to offer, in many cases, a personal guarantee on the leases. And the landlords may have had a personal guarantee in the past, even if that personal guarantee was from the operator who's not all that well capitalized, right? So that process always, re- you know, many cases requires some work and some patience. And then I think the other thing you hear, a seller always thinks that all of their real estate environmentals are clean when they're almost never completely clean in their entirety. For every 10 stores that have real estate that transfer, there's always going to be a couple. I mean, not always, but usually there's going to be a couple. Even in many cases, if the the franchisee has had a a, a phase one environmental study done on on the assets, they can even be surprised when it comes back through another environmental company that there are that there's a, you know, a, a laundromat down the road and there are issues. So those are almost always surprises. Just a few things there to consider. Question number nine, who are the buyers for your businesses? So let's see. I mean, you know, I think if we're, it, it depends on the brand, but I would say if we talk about a small deal, we're typically talking about usually existing franchisees who are nearby, who can bring in their operations and can operate the stores and fold them into their operating envelope. If it's a mid-size or larger deal where you can put someone remote from your existing operations, in mid-size deals you typically see you know a lot of existing franchisees of the brand or of similar non-competing brands in different geographies and similar geographies tend to be the ones who are the who are the likely buyers. And then when you typically you know so the first group is like five units, five to ten units or less typically is going to be a I mean not always but it's typically going to be a surrounding or nearby franchisee who wants to grow and pay a good price. 
If it's like 10 to 20 units or so, it's typically going to be too small for most family office and all private equity people typically. And it's instead going to be mostly a, a market of franchisees of scale who may or may not be contiguous to the market and may or may not operate in the brand currently, or maybe private equity or family office people who are already in the brand and are looking to expand. And then you've got like 30 plus unit acquisitions. And then in those deals, if you have 10 offers on a business like this, you typically have four, three or four of them, maybe more are outside of the system. And then the remaining are split between existing franchisees and maybe, and then other franchisees, non-contiguous of non, of dissimilar brands. So you've got maybe much more of a kind of a, you know, a diverse group of, of, of buyers in the larger deals because they see these as platform investments that can be there on a standalone basis. Final question of the day. Da, 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 da. Number 10, what's the biggest value add-on of an advisor? I get this question a lot, actually. It's like, why should we hire you kind of question, right? So I'm not trying to speak for unbridled, but when I think about an advisor, I would say that an advisor's job is probably 40% to find you buyers, 40% to manage the process and to get it closed, and then 20% of it is to have your back and to think about your legacy. So most people misappropriate the value of an advisor. And they say, oh, they're going to open up the market and find me buyers I couldn't find myself. Yes, that's true. But that's not 100% of it. That's that's obviously a big component. But you know, man, when you make deals with these big groups to buy and sell things at high prices in this marketplace, they ain't easy. It isn't easy like signing the back of a napkin and just saying, here's the stores, you know, and then walk away with a big fat check. Someone will do that with you if you're, you know, if you're willing to sell it at four times EBITDA. But if you want to sell it at seven times EBITDA, these deals are difficult. And the buyers are going to have quality of earnings studies. And they're going to come and physically inspect your assets and point out all the things that are wrong and try to negotiate a price reduction for it. And they're not going to accept your lease assignments if there's big rent increases without talking about it. And the agreements and the, you know, the asset purchase agreements are going to be difficult to negotiate. And the discussions with the franchisors are going to be hard and contingent. And so, and the borrowing at these high prices is going to be difficult to attain all the way through if there are changes in the financial situation with the company while the deal is going on. So I would say like half of the deal or 40% of the deal is managing that process, you know, managing that process, which is a which, which is a bear, all the due diligence, all of the, the things that get a deal closed. And then I think a good advisor thinks about your legacy, thinks about your intention, and has your trust. And those are very important things to consider. It's not just somebody who has an email address. It's someone who you trust, who has your back. And I think that's an important thing to consider with anyone who you trust as an advisor. So thanks so much. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for listening to this kind of rambling podcast. I hope it was helpful to you. Take care and talk to you in 2022. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.